You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And He went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to Him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at His feet. And he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven basketfuls, seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into a boat and went to the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, It will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening." You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's so good to be back with you, and it's so good to be back in Matthew's gospel. I love all of God's word, but I love preaching the gospels. And the reason why is because my heart and my goal in preaching, opening God's word with you on Sundays, it's not simply just to gain more information or learn a few new things. And it's, it's not to, to gain some tips for living a better life, although I think that can and will happen when we open God's word. Our goal, though, when we come together, is we want to encounter Jesus. We don't want to just know more about him. We want to know him more. And when we gather, we want to be reminded and we want our hearts to be realigned with what he is up to in our world. Our weeks are busy. 
our minds are pulled and our attention is pulled in so many different directions. And this is a time for us as God's people to open his word and be reminded this is who our God is. This is what he is doing. And this is what it looks like for me to play my part well. And I don't know if, if we get a clearer picture of who Jesus is or, or what he's up to in the world than the gospels. And it's particularly the gospel of Matthew, as we look at the stories about him, the interactions that he's had, the relationships that he builds, and the, the endeavors that he undertakes. And so, before we jump into the text, let's pray that vision forward together. Lord, we don't gather just to learn some things. We don't gather just to get a little bit of help for today. We gather because we want to know you, and because we want our hearts and our minds and our lives to be conformed to the image of your son and because we do not want to be unaware God that you are alive you are active that you didn't just do great works 2,000 years ago or 4,000 you're doing great works today you are actively at work in our world and in our lives and you have great desires for us You have things that you want us to step into and things that you want us to stay away from. You have longings and desires that you want to cultivate in our hearts, but there's also things that you want to see removed. There's ways you want to see us grow. And all of us, Lord, you desire in us so that we might be more like your son, that we might live more fully into the call that you have on our life, and we might live more fully in line with reality. Because you rule over all. You created this world. You are saving this world. And the day is coming when you will heal the world of all that's wrong. Pray for us all as we open your word, Lord, that you might give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that your spirit might comfort us where we need comfort, might pierce us where we need to be pierced, and we might leave here different because of your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This is a big chunk of scripture. I want to thank Lindsay for reading the whole thing. Uh, And it's really, it's three stories. There's story one is the healing and feeding. Story two is Jesus's interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then the third story is kind of that humorous story at the end of Jesus talking with his disciples about leaven and bread. And I think maybe the most helpful way for us to work through this text is to look at it under kind of those three headings, those three scenes, the healing and feeding, the interaction with the Pharisees, and then the third one, Jesus's interaction with his disciples. The first scene begins, and as I was preparing over the last couple of weeks, I'll I'll be honest, it's tempting with some of what happens in scene one to just skim over it, uh, kind of gloss over what's happening. Matthew tells us that Jesus went on from there, walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain and sat down there and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. And... It's an amazing text, and it's not like it's boring or there's not you know, incredible claims made here, but it's the same stuff Jesus has been doing for eight chapters in Matthew. And if you were to sit down and read Matthew straight through, you would say, oh, he's telling us this again, and it's almost quoted word for word 
earlier in Matthew. And so it, it kind of feels like here in chapter 15 that the narrative is, is getting a bit repetitive. And then you add to this in verse 32 when Matthew tells the story about G- Jesus feeding uh, what's known as the feeding of the 4,000, feedings the crowd, multiplying loaves and fish, which again, amazing, incredible miracle. But the thing is, one chapter earlier, and at least when we read Matthew, it seems like just a week or two earlier, Jesus did the same miracle, but that one was for 5,000, not 4,000. It just doesn't seem like Matthew's telling us anything new here. It seems like he's just repeating the same old stuff. And it's helpful for us to remember and this has become so clear to me over the last couple of years as we've been studying this gospel. Matthew, he spent decades, the best decades of his life, writing, editing, refining every, every line in this account of the life and works of Jesus. And so nothing in here is random or haphazard. There's no, he goes on a tangent. I mean, everything has been cultivated, And it's all loaded with meaning. And so there's something Matthew's telling us here. We just have to do a little work to get there. And one of the best ways to do that work is to keep it in context. And if we keep these two stories in context, we remember that in the preceding story, Jesus heals a Canaanite Gentile woman. And Pastor Rob did a wonderful job preaching on that last week. This woman, she's... She doesn't belong to the the tribe of Israel. She she doesn't know the one true God. She's like all Gentiles in the eyes of the Israelites. She is an idol worshiper, unholy and unclean. But this Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and she calls him son of David and she prays for healing. And Jesus, you remember Matthew tells us he was amazed at her faith. And this was this kind of really interesting moment where Jesus is saying, yeah, I've come for you too. Well, Matthew tells us in verse 29 that Jesus went on from there, uh, that he, he went somewhere after that interaction. But Mark, in his account of this story, he gives us more detail and he says that Jesus went to the region of the Decapolis, which is still Gentile territory, still territory that's very unfamiliar to Jesus's disciples. And where Jesus goes after this, it's actually probably really close, if not the same place that Jesus visited back in, I think, Matthew 8, when he encountered two demon-possessed men. And if you were here, it's one of the strangest stories in the Gospels. These demon-possessed men come to Jesus. The demons plead with him to cast them into a herd of pigs. So he, he casts the demons into this herd of pigs and then they run into a lake and they drown themselves and all the town people, townspeople are terrified and they plead with Jesus to leave. And so he goes away and what happens here is he comes back to that place, to that dark Gentile land filled with unclean people and unclean things like pigs and demons and Gentiles. And when he comes back, the people are not afraid of him. Instead, they're flocking to him. And so these miracles he's doing here, they're miracles that up until now, he's only been doing for the Jews, but now he's starting to do them for the Gentiles. And we, we, we see this, we read between the lines in verse 31, when the people, after seeing all of the healings Jesus does, it says, and they glorified the God of Israel. Well, of course, Jews would glorify the God of Israel because he's the only God. But for the Gentiles, they're seeing 
what's happened. Jesus has broken into their land, healed, and they start praising the one true God. So this is a, a really important pivot in Matthew's gospel. It's a turning point where his mission, Jesus' mission is expanding and extending beyond Israel to the whole world. And, you know, we, we think, of course, God so loved the world. Of course, Jesus died for everyone. But it wasn't that obvious in that day. The disciples didn't get it. It's kind of what leads to the anger of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because the assumption held by many of the Jewish people in Jesus' day is that the Messiah was come for the Jews alone. That he wouldn't come with simply an, you know, an Israel first policy. It was Israel only policy. Everyone else is going to be wiped out. And yet here, he's crossing boundaries He's interacting with people that up until this point, his disciples would have said are certainly unclean. He's not fitting a mold. Which all of this is necessary background for when Jesus, after they've been with, this crowd has been with him for three days. He says, I refuse to send them away hungry because they haven't eaten anything in three days and they're going to faint on the way. And because Jesus is overflowing with care and love and compassion, he says, we need to feed the crowds. And the disciples respond in verse 32, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd? Now, on the surface, this might not seem strange, but you keep it in context. It's a very strange question. Why is it a strange question? Two weeks earlier, the same exact thing happened. Jesus is with his disciples. Huge crowd, 5,000 people. And he says, we need to feed these people. And the disciples basically asked the same question. Where are we going to get enough bread? And so two weeks earlier, they saw what Jesus can do. And so you would think when Jesus said, I refuse to send them away hungry, at least one of the disciples, you know, the sharpest knife in the drawer, would have grabbed whatever loaf or fish he could find and would bring it to Jesus and say, here you go, do it again. Because it was awesome last time. And I want to see you do it again here. But they didn't. Instead, they asked, how are we going to feed this crowd? How are we going to feed these ones? See, Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. That's part of it. But more, the the miracle of multiplying loaves, that's, that's a miracle steeped in Israel's history. See it in 2 Kings 4 when... Elisha multiplies bread, but, you know, the the most central miracle is in the book of Exodus, when Moses was in the wilderness and God provided manna from heaven, bread in the desolate place. And so when Jesus multiplies loaves in chapter 14, he's tapping into this deep, rich symbolism in history. It's a miracle rooted at the, you know, the, the most important event of God's people up until that time. The Exodus. So this is a miracle that's very much, very, very Jewish. And even more than that, it's also a miracle that kind of looks forward to the promise of a messianic banquet that one day God would sit down at the table with his people 
and they would feast and they would celebrate. And so the disciples, how I see this, the disciples are struggling when Jesus says, we need to get bread, we need to feed them. They're struggling because for them, it's one thing for Jesus to heal the Gentiles or cast out demons. That kind of makes sense because Jesus is overflowing with mercy and compassion, and that's just kind of the guy he is. It's one thing for him to give some food out. You know, on the side of the road, it's another thing to invite someone into the house. And what he is doing here, he's sharing a meal with them. He's inviting them in. He's inviting them in, not just to a meal, but to the story, to the history, and to the heritage of God's people. He's inviting them to share of the bread. And this was something the disciples, they just couldn't wrap their mind around. It didn't make sense. You can imagine the disciples and how many Jews would say, that's not their story, that's our story. That bread's not for them, it's for us. In our day, Jesus would be labeled as, what what he's doing here would be called cultural appropriation. But Jesus is not just another rabbi, he's the Lord of all. And he has the authority to say, you know what? This bread's for them too. And that story, they can come into that story too, now. What he's doing here is he's flinging open the doors to the kingdom of heaven. He's inviting these Gentile outsiders in. He's making room for them at the table, saying, you can be here too. And I think these stories, they, they invite us to consider the openness of the kingdom of God. How open it is, how available it is. Because it's open and available to all to Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor, slave and free, black and white. This is a repeated refrain we see in the New Testament. Paul says it a few different times. Here's the gospel. It's for, it's for all. Especially those who feel like outsiders. Jesus goes out of his way to bring the outsiders in. And so if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you feel like an outsider in the church, you feel like an outsider with God. I want you to know Jesus came for people like you. If you felt pushed to the margins or you've made some big mistakes in your life that make you feel like, I don't know if I can go to church or really be who I am in a church, Jesus, he opened the door for you too. If you feel unqualified, out of place, unworthy, Jesus came to save people just like you and like me. And in this time in history, I know that there are many people who aren't doing great. There are many Christians who aren't doing great right now. Maybe they're really discouraged. Maybe they're depressed. Maybe they've picked up some particular sin that's following them around like a shadow. And I want you to know, Jesus came for you too, and the kingdom's still open to you. Sometimes I think we as believers, we think the door's wide open when you're not a Christian to come in. Anyone can come. But then like once you get in, we think we're going to slide out the door or be pushed out the back door the minute it turns out that we're sinners. I want you, I want us to be a church that sees 
how open. Sees what Jesus did, the lines he crossed, the boundaries he pushed so that he might accomplish his mission. He might bring salvation to the world. This, this message, it's, it's always timely. It's always needed. But I think in this cultural moment where divisions are magnified and exacerbated, where people are drawing lines everywhere and assigning labels and determining who's in and who's out and who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, this moment where we cancel any poor fool who actually reveals to the world that they're sinful, their sinfulness is actually exposed. We say we can't have any of that. Man, this passage, it's like a tall drink of water for anyone who is aware of their own sin and their brokenness. Jesus, he stands apart. He doesn't exclude people. He doesn't label us. He doesn't write us off. He is filled with mercy and compassion. That's the kind of church I hope we become, we grow into, because that's the only kind of real church there is. It's not easy, though. So Jesus, he does this, confounds the disciples. And then in 16, we're told, actually end of 15, after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is back in Jewish territory. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So scene two. Jesus comes back into the Jewish region. And when he shows up, the religious authorities are waiting for him. And if this sounds familiar, it's because it is. Something very similar happened back in chapter 12. Chapter 12, it was the Pharisees and scribes. And the Pharisees and scribes, they got along. The Pharisees and Sadducees, on the other hand, I mean, they were the two divergent ruling parties of the day that were almost always at odds with one another. But here they've come together. And what they're doing here, it's kind of like, imagine a joint congressional hearing where Republicans and Democrats are together locking arms, patting each other on the back, trying to tear down a third-party candidate that they feel like might be a threat. Pharisees and Sadducees, they didn't. They never locked arms over anything. But they had such concerns about this man, Jesus, that they come and they say, hey, we need to see your credentials. Give us a sign. You're making all of these claims. Prove it. You say you're the the Messiah. You say you speak with the authority of God. Prove it. And I just want to say it's, it's not always bad to request a sign from God. Sometimes in the Old Testament, God graciously gives signs to his people like Abraham, Joshua, Gideon. He does it to strengthen people whose faith are weak or who are struggling. But God, this is different. This isn't a request from men who want to believe. Jesus, we want to believe. Help our unbelief. This request, these men are standing over Jesus. They're putting him on trial. They're demanding a sign. They're saying, who do you think you are? In more words. And it's quite stunning, really, because Jesus... At this point, he's performed countless miracles for tens of thousands of people. There's been plenty and plenty of signs. 
And he responds to their request by saying, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. What Jesus is saying here is, you're all smart men. You've all read the Bible. You know the promises, but you refuse to see what's right before your eyes. I mean, there are countless Old Testament prophecies that are coming true right in front of their eyes. They're witnessing it, but they can't see it. And they just say, well, we need, we need another sign, Jesus. They're watching the, the blind gain sight, the lame be healed, outsiders being welcomed in. And Jesus, he says to them, essentially, your problem is not you need more information, Your problem is you lack the imagination and the faith to see what God is doing right before you. You lack the imagination to see that the long-promised Messiah is here and he's doing what God has always promised that he would do. And it's it's not happening how you thought it would happen. I know you guys are the religious authorities, so you thought God would consult with you before he broke into this world, but he didn't. Instead, he went to a single teenage mom and said, you're going to be the one, but God doesn't have to consult you. He came through the lowly and the broken and the weak, and I'm here, and yet you refuse to come to me. You don't, you don't need new information, more information. You need to open yourself up to what I am doing. And something that really struck me this week as I was studying this passage in verse 4, Jesus, he doesn't say the Pharisees and Sadducees are ignorant or clueless, nor does he say they're well-intentioned but misdirected. He doesn't say their heart's in the, wrong, the right place, but no, he says they are an evil and adulterous generation. Evil and adulterous. I was thinking of that word adulterous. saying that the problem for you isn't that you, you don't have enough faith. The problem is that you are unfaithful. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is he's saying, like, you guys, all you do all day is read the book. That's all you do. All day, every day, you read the book. And if you do that, you know that God is compassionate, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love. He shows steadfast devotion to generation after generation. You know God, you know who he is, you know his heart, you know he is merciful. And yet you're resisting me, you're attacking me, you're fighting against me, You're drawing lines and declaring who's in and who's out. You're putting heavy burdens on others and not lifting a finger to help them. You're filled with judgment, condemnation, and spiritual arrogance. You might know the word, but you don't know the God who spoke the word. You're unfaithful. You've gone astray. And so Jesus says, no sign. You want a sign? No sign. Actually, one sign. It's a really great sign. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. 
How earlier in Matthew, Jesus had said the same thing. Matthew 12, he explains what the sign of Jonah is. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will stand at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying, you want the sign? Here's the big sign, me. My preaching, my life, my death, my burial, and my resurrection. That's the sign. And he says, you know, when Jonah came out of the fish, the men of Nineveh repented. Whoa, what just happened to this guy? And here I am doing all of this, and you are blind to it. You know, you, you acknowledge God with your lips, but your hearts are so far from him. Scene two. Then scene three. This funny little story. When the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. Verse six, Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves saying, We brought no bread. Jesus is mad because we forgot to bring bread. Which you can imagine, and he kind of says, are you kidding me? Like, bread is not a problem for me. I've always got it. It's always, you know, right here. I can always get you bread. The problem is not bread. And Jesus, aware of this, he said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I do not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And I love Matthew. Reads like dry humor to me. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I read the story, and I was thinking about the warnings that went out a few weeks ago of don't plant strange seeds that get mailed to you from China. <laughs> you know, it's just such an interesting news story. Okay, I wasn't planning on it, uh, but you've, you've confirmed that. And what's going on here, Jesus is saying, you got to watch out for the leaven. And they're like, they're thinking the same way. Is this, like, do they have like some kind of poisonous yeast that they put in their bread? What, what is he talking about? And he presses in and he says, no. I mean, yeast is a, a metaphor that's used again and again in the Bible. And Jesus is saying there's something about the teaching and the heart and the mentality of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that's like yeast. It's small, it's almost imperceptible, but it's incredibly powerful. And if you let it in, it spreads all over. Jesus is telling his disciples. You have to be on guard against the subtle but toxic and destructive teaching of the Pharisees. What is that teaching? What is this leaven? I think the way I would put it, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it's, I'll say it a few different ways. It's trying to obey God while neglecting the heart of God. It's trying to live a life of devotion while remaining ignorant to what God is up to in the world.
It's losing sight of the big picture. You know, there's a weird way sometimes where we think that, gosh, I want to be so careful in how I say this, but sometimes the way we think about holiness, we think it's about us and what we do and how well we can do something inside of ourselves and we can become so narrow-minded and our focus becomes so narrow that we actually lose sight of, like we are all just, we're all just one part of a bigger kingdom. And while we all desperately want to know, God, what is your call for my life? We're, and that's good and that's right. But we forget that there's actually a great mission that God is achieving in our world. And it's born out of a heart of mercy. And leaven comes in when, when we lose that heart of mercy and we lose sight of the big mission of what God is doing. And when that happens, what spreads in us, when we forget that we are loved by God through the work of Christ, unconditionally. That we are safe in God, in Christ. And that we are called by God to be salt and light in this world. When we lose sight of that, like the Pharisees did, it seems like we always fall back into self-righteous, self-justifying behavior. When we lose sight of the love of God and the the peace of God, we start to crave what all humans crave apart from God, power, influence, control, prestige, honor. And then inevitably, we start drawing lines of who's in and who's out and who's further in. And there's like nine layers of being in and they're here. And I'm going to try to get a little further in there. And we, we spend all of our time doing this, putting on the show, And that's why Jesus tells his disciples, these men he's loved, he's devoted three years coming up on of his life to them. They're not like religious professionals. They don't know the word. Most of them like the Pharisees do. But he says, you got to be on your guard too. Because this, this yeast, this leaven can actually infect you. Beware. And I think one of the, the tragic gifts, it's a gift, but it's, there's a lot of tragedy in it, of this time and this moment. So I think we are seeing how deeply the American church has been shaped by this leaven. We're seeing how deeply this, you know, we're going to obey God but neglect God's heart how much it's crept into the church, and I see it everywhere, and you see it everywhere. I see it in Christians who dunk on people online, leaders, principals, superintendents, political figures, and I'm not saying there's no room for criticism, but man, it seems like any time a decision is made that a Christian in America disagrees with, we're like, we're going to take it. We're going to take them down. We're going to go after them. We're going to publicly undress them and assault them. We seem to be losing the ability to interact with, in a charitable way with those who see things differently. And maybe we never had it in the first place, but life was going really easy. And so the disagreements were easy to move beyond. 
I even hear Christians, there's this, this weird, distorted version of Christianity that thinks like beating your chest and picking fights with people is the way of Christ. I hear Christians who, it's like the fruit of the Spirit to them is unappealing. I don't think I want that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's a growing band of people in our world who, who think Christianity is defined by harshness, judgment, arrogance. And then you, you add to that cynicism. <laughs> I don't know if the world around us would say those Christians, they really love their enemies well. I don't know if they would say we love our neighbors well. And we all, we're seeing this. It's not, I'm not the only one who's seeing this. It's, it's all around us. I think at the root of so much of this passion and anger is this desire to be right, which is self-righteousness, to be in control. I think the spirit of self-righteousness is what leads Christians in our day to, to call any form, to, to try to turn any form of hardship into persecution. Instead of enduring hardship as discipline, as the author of Hebrews says. And the difference between that's pretty significant. Author of Hebrews says, when you experience hardship, treat it like it's discipline. It's not God punishing you, but God wants to refine you. And so in the face of hardship, ask yourself questions. How might I need to grow? What might God be revealing about my own heart? How does he want to deepen me? But when we treat it as persecution, then we look for the enemies that we can go after. Because there's something about us that like, we, we, we think the way is to fight and to fight for our rights. And sure, there are times where we do need to stand up and fight for our rights. But I would not say that's a central tenet of the Christian faith, fighting for our rights. Jesus, ne- Jesus never said, blessed are those who are right, for they will be called God's beloved warriors. That beatitude, as much as many people want it in there, it's not in there. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Does anyone want to be meek? Jesus said, blessed are the meek, because they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The tragic gift of our time is we're seeing that if these are Jesus' core values of his kingdom, we're seeing that there is, there is a deep disconnect between that and a lot of what's embodied in our world. And it, I'm gonna just, it's not just out there, it's me too. Like it's in here too. I feel it too. But I do wonder sometimes people who self-identify for, as Christians, but it just, it seems like they have no regard for the teachings of Christ. And I know this is pretty indicting and it's meant to be, but with the indictment, there's also an invitation because the problem when you go that route, the problem when you become self-righteous and judgmental and 
all of these things, the problem, what's that born out of? Having a deep awareness of the love of God doesn't lead to self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is born out of fear, out of anger. Self-righteousness is born, born when we are afraid and we think we have to, you know, climb up to God. But humility, mercy, compassion, those things are, are watered in our life when we know that God climbed down to us. And when we remember what God is up to in our world. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son and he didn't send him, John John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save, but to save the world through him. We worship a savior that stepped into our mess, who touched lepers, who hung out with outcasts, who washed his disciples' feet, who was betrayed by a Chris. by a kiss and it was nailed to a cross. That's our champion. And he did it all so that we could be brought near to God. He's the same one who said, are you tired? Are you weary? Come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace in the midst of the storm. And I think so much, underneath so much of the anger and divisiveness, What it is, is it's fear. It's feeling estranged from God. It's not knowing that we are held by the love of God, that our salvation is secure in Christ. And that he is our champion and he has called us to become like him. Yes, we stand for truth. Yes, we proclaim truth to a world that oftentimes does not want to hear it. But we also wash feet. You know, I was thinking a verse like, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's a a very powerful and potentially divisive verse. You know when Jesus said that verse? He said it to his disciples right after he washed their feet. (laughs) He didn't stand on the mountain, you know, like a general. If you want to follow it here, he said, I washed your feet, but you need to know. Posture matters. So I invite you as we move to communion. Maybe this week, the invitation for you is to pour out your heart to God, like water. Maybe it's to actually do an inventory of your life. Where am I? What's, what's brewing? Why am I so angry or afraid or discouraged or detached, maybe? What's underneath all of that? And as we come to the Lord's table and we're reminded of the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us, let us be reminded that we are held in the love of God through the finished work of Christ. His body was broken. The bread, the bread was broken. He didn't just multiply loaves. He gave his body and he encouraged us to take part in his life and in his death by taking part in the bread and the cup. So whether you're discouraged, whether you're angry, whether you're afraid, 
My prayer for us all as we come to the Lord's table today is that we might be reminded that we are held and loved deeply by God through the work of Christ and that we might live out of that. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.